Good to see you guys again this morning. Uh, first time, or first time in a long time. It's uh, glad that you're back. We're continuing in a series today. We started way back in the fall called uh, The Big Story, where we are going through exactly that. Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one story of Scripture all together. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. So if you want to grab your Bibles and go ahead and turn there, uh, you can do that. If not, no big deal. I will be putting the passages up there on the screen. Uh, this week and next, we're going to be spending uh, a couple of weeks just uh, continuing out uh, the Lord's, uh, actually, not. we are going to get into the Lord's Prayer a little bit in chapter 6, but really the, the Sermon on the Mount, that's going to be Matthew chapter 5 uh, through 7, one of Jesus' more famous sermons. It's one of the, the first public ones that we have of his, and a uh, very impressive thing. He's preaching on the side of a mountaintop, and people are outside sitting on rocks, and they're actually paying attention and gathering what he has to say, and so uh, one of the more impressive feats. The passage we're going to be looking at today is going to be a tough one, though, because it's going to be dealing with uh, the subject of hypocrisy, and it's probably going to be hitting a little bit close to home. Um, 2012, David Kinnaman, he wrote a book called Unchristian. Uh, it's called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And it wasn't too surprising. It just talked about how the number one reason why young people today are walking away from the faith or rejecting the faith altogether is because of this problem of hypocrisy. And when you read that kind of a thing, you're kind of going, okay, this is not exactly shocking. I know that. I probably sense some of those things, and it's not exactly brand new news. But the thing that probably was a little bit more surprising to me more than anything else is that they said that in the middle of all their research, in the middle of everything that they did, what they found was that about 85% of millennial non-believers genuinely believe that most Christians are hypocritical. Can we just think about that one for just a second? The number one reason why most young people today are walking away from the faith or else rejecting the faith altogether is because of the problem of hypocrisy. And 85% of millennial non-believers believe that most Christians are hypocritical. It's kind of a problem, isn't it? Like we're not naturally drawn to people that we believe are hypocritical people. And it's not exactly a problem that young people are just identifying today. Like right around Christmas this past year, the Huffington Post came out with an article that really caught my attention. The article was titled, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. <laughs> kind of looked at that was like, whoa. All right, sucker punch there. I was like, I, I mean, the, that was the name of the article, Exposing America's Biggest Hypocrites, Evangelical Christians. And I remember reading that kind of going, okay, getting over the, 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 the gut punch that took place right there and kind of going, okay, I'm a little curious. And so I remember reading through some of these things and kind of going, don't agree with every little detail, but oh my gosh, there's a lot that's true in this article. And it was just talking about how um, all the different celebrity pastor moral failures that we're, that we're reading about in the news, it feels like every other month, you know what I'm talking about? We're talking about heroes of the faith. I mean, genuine uh, men and women who are loving and serving the Lord God. We've read their books, we've listened to their sermons, and they're falling into all kinds of sex scandals and, and adultery and, and racism and, and, and alcoholism and drugs and bullying and covering up abuse scandals and things like that. And, and those are just like the high-profile cases, right? The ones that, that are actually newsworthy that people want to read about. It has nothing to do with um, the aver what's going on in the average Christian home today. I mean, it talked about all kinds of things, like the racial problems that are still tearing apart our country today, and how we are people that promote a gospel of reconciliation, yet we are still somehow numb to the cries of our brothers and sisters who have been telling us that we have not actually arrived and that there are still problems that need to be listened to. I mean, even this past week, it was the uh, 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. 
The Gospel Coalition is an organization that um, is, is, is uh, committed to gospel integrity and gospel centrality in everything that we do. And they hosted this conference out in Memphis, Tennessee called the MLK 50 Conference where they're gathering pastors and authors and, and Christian leaders from around the country, white, black, every color in, in between. And, and they're talking about the subject of racial reconciliation in an effort to educate the conservative evangelical church that there are still issues that we need to be aware of today. On Wednesday morning, I was listening to Matt Chandler talk, and he introduced it like this. He said, uh, it's still a problem. He was acknowledging this tension in his own church, which is here in Dallas, of course. But he says this. He says, if I preach on the subject of justice, then my inbox will be filled with praise that I even broached that topic to begin with. But if I applied it to the subject of race, then all of a sudden I'm a Marxist or I've been watching too much liberal media. If I preach on abortion, I'm applauded as courageous, a ferocious man of God. But if I speak about race, then I'm being too political. If I quote Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, I can count on getting praise, even though he was horribly anti-Semitic in his latter years. But if I quote Martin Luther King Jr., my inbox is filled with comments about his immorality, or that, again, I am being too liberal, like somehow racial equality were only a liberal political matter and not something that is central to the heart of the gospel. Church, it's still a problem in the world today. We have not actually arrived. And it, and it kept going on about all kinds of things, right? We're talking about acceptable sins that you're going to find in the church all over the place. We're talking about things like greed and envy and materialism and gossip and lust and these things that every one of us would acknowledge are simple before God. But you know what I'm talking about? Like these are the B-team sins that they're okay to struggle with and deal with because you know what? Nobody's perfect, right? And these are the socially acceptable ones that are there in the church. It talked about all kinds of things like how many of us have blurred the lines between faith and politics and how it's revealed that many of us are probably more politically loyal than we actually are biblically loyal. And church, like what I'm saying is that like, this is still a problem today. That this isn't just something that took place in Jesus' times that we're reading about in the Gospels. But it's something that's, that's just continued over the centuries. And it still cripples us today. And to some degree, like it's going to be expected, right? Like to some degree, it, it's sort of expected because um, in as much as we are representatives of a good and holy and perfect God, we are going to fail to be inconsistent in representing a good and holy and perfect God, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul is going to say it like this. He's going to say, I find this thing inside of me that I hate. Like I do the thing that I don't want to do, and I do the thing that I hate, and I don't do the thing that I do want to do. Like I, I, I feel this thing inside of me that's just naturally just inconsistent. That's Paul, right? We're talking about like the, the A-team Christian right there, like the, the, the author of half of the New Testament, like, like the A-team awesome, the Apostle Paul, and he's acknowledging that there's this tension inside of me where I'm not always consistent in my representation of a good and holy and perfect God. However, hypocrisy is going to go a little bit further than simply inconsistency. Hypocrisy is going to cross the line from simple inconsistency to a callous, unrepentant behavior that directly contradicts the heart of God. And it's exactly what Jesus is going to be dealing with in this passage we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 6. So the question I want to be dealing with today is exactly the same one that he does too. How in the world do you and I get on the front end of this hypocrisy problem today? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 6. Um, it's going to be a very, very familiar passage. We're going to get into the Lord's Prayer in just a little bit. But I don't think I've ever personally put it in its appropriate context to understand that the Lord's Prayer is coming in this specific attack against the religious hypocrisy that was taking place in that day. And I want to put it in that context for us this morning. So while you're turning there, I want to catch us up again, kind of where we are in this big story. We have flipped the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? 
uh, exact same God, Old Testament to New. I feel like I need to make that disclaimer all the time because uh, that is always misunderstood. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was there in the beginning, continues through the end. Exact same God, exact same mission. God is redeeming the world. He is, he is bringing in his plan of redemption, coming to the ends of the earth, and it's happening through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. Uh, we're going to get into the New Testament, and all we're going to see is a brand new covenant promise that is going to come into being through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be one of the main differences that takes place. As we get into this sermon that Jesus preaches, the crowd that Jesus is speaking to is a really, really interesting crowd. Chapter 4, we're going to see Matthew kind of go off. He jumps about 30 years from the birth of Christ uh, all the way up to the ministry of Christ. Uh, he begins it right around 30 years old. And in chapter 4, Jesus is going to go and he's going to recruit his different disciples. And he's going to begin his earthly ministry. He's going to travel throughout all of Galilee preaching this very, very simple message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verse 24, we're going to get an idea of kind of who these people are that are actually following Jesus at this point in time. It's going to say this. News about Jesus spread throughout all of Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan began to follow him. So that is largely who is in attendance at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It is all the have-nots that are there in culture, the despised, the various diseases, it is the batokos. That's what we talked about a, a couple weeks ago, the spiritually impoverished people. They're not the only ones there in attendance that day. The other part of the crowd that's also got Jesus' attention here is going to be all the haves in culture. It's going to be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who are politically elite, and the people who are religiously elite at that point in time, too. Remember, this is a culture that has got, this is a culture of haves and have-nots. This is not a whole lot of a, a middle class taking place here. It is a culture of haves and have-nots. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but... What's the problem that creeps into um, that first century culture, not the first century, but what's the problem that creeps into the nation of Israel during those 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New? Remember what we've been talking about. Malachi ends. The, the problem before that was rampant idolatry. God got a hold of their attention through the different uh, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, these different captivities that take place. They come out of captivity, and their problem's no longer idolatry, but their problem is this empty religiosity. It is this religious hypocrisy that begins to take place. They've learned their lesson about idolatry, and so they're going to enter this 400 years of silence just before the time of Christ. They're going to be hearing no more pro prophetic words from God, no more divine intervention, and these people are going to be choking out the Old Testament law, holding on to it for dear life, creating these systems of, of, uh, these, these of self-righteousness uh, that's going to be taking place through obedience to the law. And so that's what's going to be creeping in to that culture that Jesus is immediately speaking to. It's religious hypocrisy, all kinds of legalism, and all kinds of self-righteousness that's, that's found by holding on to the law. And so that's the audience that Jesus is going to be speaking to here in, in, um, in Matthew chapter 6. And so I want to jump into this. Let's pick it up here in verse 1. And I want you to see what he has to say about this problem of hypocrisy which has crept into his people. Here's what he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. In other words, every time you give and every time you're generous, you don't have to go straight to Instagram or Facebook and just be posting it and blowing it up for the entire world to see what an incredible, awesome Christian you actually are. Right? As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets in order to be honored by other people. Truly, I tell you, they've received the re reward in full. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you may, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He continues with prayer in this exact same way. Verse 5. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Second time here. Don't be like the hypocrites. That's who he's speaking to. Don't be like those people. Be like this over here. Don't be like the religious hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by other people. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Now, let me ask you this question here. Has anybody ever heard this passage used to talk about the privatization of religious practice? Everybody, anybody ever heard this to say, okay, like religious practice, prayer, and all of these different things, like that's a private matter. It needs to be kept out of the public sector. Okay, it's not what's going on here in this text. Jesus' entire earthly ministry was done very much in the public eye with an eye towards conversion. Jesus prayed privately, but he also prayed publicly. Jesus gave to the needy in private, but he also gave to the needy in public. He fed the hungry in private, and he also fed the 5,000 very, very, very publicly, right? He healed people privately, and he, gave, and he healed people very, very publicly. So this is not about the privatization of religious practice. What this is about is the externally religious who love to be seen as incredibly religious, Right? That's what this is about. This is about uh, the person who's figured out that there's a way to use religion that's always going to give you the applause of other people. Right? It's the lay person who only prays at church so that they can keep up the facade in front of their friends. It's the elder who only prays in a meeting. It's the pastor who only prays when it's time to prepare a sermon. And it's the generous who's only generous when there's a TV crew ready to broadcast it to the rest of the world, right? Like, that's what we're talking about here. It's not about whether or not you give. Jesus wants to know why you want to give. It's not just about, like, whether or not you pray on your way to work or anything like that. Like, Jesus wants to know what's going on inside. Why do you actually want to pray? It's not just about these externals and and are you doing the right things, but Jesus wants to know, is there anything real and authentic going on inside of you which is driving this right religious practice? It's why in verse 6, Jesus is going to say, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, is going to reward you. In other words, here's the thing that I want to know. Like, I want to know, am I, am I the means to an end or am I actually the end? In other words, like, when there's nothing else to be gained from being with me, do you still want to be with me? When no one's there to high-five you and you're going to get no accolades, do you still want to actually pray? That's what he wants to know. Church, this is the difference between having a consumeristic relationship with God and one that's deeply personal that's been transformed by who he actually is in your life. I think we get this. We know what consumeristic relationships are kind of like. It's like the relationship that you, that you have with your boss, right? I remember this a, a number of years ago. I was in sales, and, and I had this boss when I was there that I loved. Like, he was a fantastic boss. And every single day, I'd go into his office, and we'd talk, and he'd say, Hey, Aaron, how are you doing on your, on your sales goals? And how are you doing with this, that, and the other? And are, are you following up with your customers? And are you doing this, that? Uh, and here's the latest information about these different things over here. And, and he would just go through these lists of quest- questions with me all the time. And I love that guy. He was a fantastic boss, but let's make no mistake about it. Like, that is a consumeristic relationship that is all about the bottom line. I needed him to teach me and to hold me accountable, and he needed me to sell like crazy so that we can make each other a whole lot of money, right? Like, that's a consumeristic relationship. Uh, it wasn't a surprise that when I left that place and stopped working there, like, we weren't, very, we weren't friends much after that. Church, like, a consumeristic relationship is nothing compared to a personal one. Like, a personal one is exactly the one that I have with my wife, Kat, right? Like, I I legitimately remember having this feeling in college where I was like, I never want to graduate from this place. 
Like I sat there and I was at a and and I was like, I'm having so much fun here with my friends. I love this house, being here with like eight guys in a two-bedroom place. And like this is the greatest part of the time of my life. And then all of a sudden I met Kat and I remember thinking to myself, I cannot wait to get out of this place. Like I need to, I need to graduate from this place. I need to get out of here. I need to marry this woman. I need to be with her. Like, it didn't even matter what we were doing, right? I mean, we would, we would be on the phone with each other late at night, and we'd be, like, saying stupid things like, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, no, you hang up. You know what I'm talking about? Like, stupid, crazy things. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, I, I mean, I go to the Arboretum all the time, and I could care less about flowers, right? Like, I, I've seen Pride and Prejudice 17 times, and I hate the movie. Like, I was there on opening night for The Notebook with 8,000 other women and me, right? And I'm still scarred by the whole thing. But, like, none of it matters because she is the end, right? She's the end. All I cared to be about was, was with her. She is the ultimate end. And it's exactly what we're talking about here in this passage. Church, you want to know why prayer is so hard for so many of us? It's because Jesus is the means to a different end, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, we, we love us some Jesus and stuff, but it's like, if we're being really, really honest, it's like what I'd really love is for my kids to be safe and to have a little bit of morality. And don't get me wrong, like we love us and Jesus and stuff, but it's like what I'd really, really love is for him to help me get this raised so that I can live my best life right now, right? Like we love us and Jesus, but, but I'd really like this, that, and the other. And what Jesus is saying to these hypocrites is that he is actually the better reward. And I don't want you to misunderstand me because those things in and of themselves are not necessarily problematic. But when they become your true end, you will never be compelled to pray until those things are in jeopardy of being taken away. It's consumerism being applied to Jesus. And it's exactly what Jesus is going after here in this passage, going after these religious hypocrites. And he's saying, what you don't understand is that I am actually the better reward. I'm inviting you into this interpersonal relationship, this dynamic thing whereby I come inside, I transform you from the inside out. You can love me not just with your external obedience, but with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. What you don't understand is there's so much more that I'm offering you here than just a new moral code. It's why in verse 9, Jesus is going to teach us to pray just like this. He's going to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, first thing you do, like here's how to pray. You want to know how to pray? First thing you do is you don't even need to need anything to go before the Lord to pray. Like all you can do is you, you can go before him and you can say, I don't even need anything. I just want to be with you and say, hallowed be your name. Worshiped be your name. Holy be your name. Like I don't even have my list written out. Like I don't even need a raise or anything. Like I'm, I'm fine. I don't even need these, this, that, and the other. I, like you want to know how to pray, then be willing to come to him and say, hallowed be your name. Nothing else in the agenda except for worship. That's it. And the reason we can do that is because he's not just this empty, distant genie in the sky like the hypocrites often believe that he is. But he's actually your, like your father who is in heaven. And it, it, the whole thing is just deeply personal. Like there's nothing consumeristic about it. That's what John's talking about when he says, as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. There's a new relationship dynamic that's taking place. Paul's going to explain a little bit further in Romans chapter 8. He's going to say, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we long to cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, like, uh, because of what God has done for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like, my relationship with God has transitioned from one of consumerism and fear to now one of life and one of sonship or daughtership. He has adopted us as sons and daughters, and he has given us the right to be called children of God. And so now we have a brand new spirit within us that longs and loves to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, I want to be with you. 
Church, like, it's not just about external obligation. There is this authentic joy that he is offering because he is a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. It's exactly why his presence is the ultimate reward also for the children that he loves. I'll never forget a number of years ago, some friends of ours, uh, they went through a three-year grueling process trying to adopt their child from Africa. Three years it took. The paperwork was done after year one. I mean, after one year, paperwork, money, all these different kinds of things, little Billy over in Africa was their child legally. And the government held it all up. They didn't want to release him. They refused to let him go home with their parents. And that went on for about another year and a half. Can you imagine that? Like, not only are you waiting a whole year while the paperwork gets done, but, like, that child is yours, and you cannot see him or even bring him home. About a year and a half into it, they get fed up in the, in the entire thing, and they decide, that, um, they decide they're going to sell everything that they have. They sold their home. They sold all their different stuff. They packed up the kids, packed up the wife. They moved over to Africa next to the, uh, next to the orphanage where their son was staying so that they could be near him and fight the cause right there in front of their face. It took about six more months of living there in Africa before they ever got to meet their son and bring him home. Church, can you imagine the joy of that day, three years into the process, where you get to meet your son and you get to actually bring him home? Can you imagine the flip side, too? Because uh, can you imagine the flip side of the, the joy of that child had they known everything that that father went through in order to be near his son? I mean, can you imagine the joy of just, of just finally realizing one day he, he did what for me? They, they, they packed up and waited three years for me. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me. Like he paid what for me? He went where for me? He did what for me? Church, that's what we're talking about. He's not just any kind of father, right? Like he's not just, he's, not, he's infinitely better than anything that we've experienced here on this earth. Like he's infinitely better than anything, whether you had it good or you had it bad at home. He's infinitely better than whatever that paradigm may be. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly just. And he is the very definition of love, which is exactly why his presence is our greatest reward. Hypocrites, they, they don't know him like that. They don't know God like that. They, they think it's like a business. I go in and do a few things over here and I go and attend church here and I do a good moral deed over here. Then all of a sudden he's going to repay me and then I'm going to really, really get the things that I really, really want. They, they think it's like a consumeristic ordeal, kind of like it's a business. And what he's saying, church, is that there's so much more that I'm inviting you into. Like I'm inviting you into this interpersonal relationship whereby I'm your father and you are my son or my daughter and this is a good thing because I actually love you and I'm a good and perfectly loving father and, and, and my presence is actually your, your reward. He's saying I'm not just a means to an end, like I'm actually the end. And church, when we understand that that is what he is offering on the table, it changes everything. Like we, we're able to move from this consumerism and hypocrisy to something that is deeply personal and real. Like you, you go from this empty religiosity to something that is authentic and grounded in worship. Church, do you feel like if we prayed this way that like hypocrisy would still be a problem? Like our Father who art in heaven just hallowed, nothing else. Hallowed be your name. Church, everything that he gives us from here on out in the Lord's Prayer is a model for prayer that helps eradicate the hypocrisy that wants to grow inside of us. Everything that we're seeing here in this Lord's Prayer is a model to help eradicate the hypocrisy that would love to grow up inside of us. Like the next thing that he says is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come, right? It's not about my kingdom. It's not about building my fame, my prestige. It's not about my kingdom come, not my will be done, but your kingdom come, your will be done. 
In other words, like everything that is true, God, in your heavenly kingdom, everything that is true under your perfect rule and reign, this future tense thing, everything that is true then, would you come and bring those realities into this present tense right now? In other words, God, uh, I know that your word says that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know that the revelation says you're going to come back one day and you're going to rule in perfect glory and in in perfect love. And and this is going to be a day when you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more crying, no more pain. There's going to be no more racism. There's going to be no more abuse. There's going to be no more inequality. There's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more ignorance. There's going to be no more callousness. There's going to be no more hatred. There's going to be no more confusion. There's going to be no more miscarriages. There's going to be no more cancer. There's going to be no more cheating. There's going to be no more abandonment. There's going to be no more betrayal. There's going to be no more addiction. There's going to be no more hypocrisy. There's going to be no more sadness. And there's going to be no more loss. So yes, God, not my kingdom come. This isn't about me becoming famous. This is about you becoming famous and bringing your kingdom into the present tense right now. And inasmuch as you say now is not the right time, it's not my will be done, but it's your will that be done. Church, would hypocrisy be a problem if this is how we prayed? Lord, it's nothing to do with me. Like it's nothing to do with my kingdom. It has nothing to do with my fame and my glory. It has everything to do with you. Usher in your kingdom right now. It has nothing to do with my will. Ultimately, your will be done. Like, would hypocrisy be such a problem if this is how we prayed over and over again, every single day, exactly as Jesus taught us to pray? I mean, he continues, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Not annual bread, not monthly bread, not bread for all of retirement, but every single day. I recognize that even though I graduated from Baylor and make six figures a year, and I'm just killing it professionally, like, every single day I actually need you. Like, I actually need you to provide. Like, even though I have a job and I'm comfortable right now, but, like, I actually need you because you're the ultimate provider. It's exactly what Psalm 127 is talking about. I love this psalm. Here it is. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even while he sleeps. Church, did you know that? Like, while you were sleeping last night, God was providing. And and I know it doesn't seem like that, but while you were asleep, God was providing. Church, who is the one that makes it rain? Who is the one that makes the sun rise and the sun set? Like, who's the one who gives you health? Who's the one who's sovereign over the economy and the stability of our land? Who's the one who provides freedom and life and breath and safety and shelter and comfort? I promise you, church, like, we've got nothing to do with those things. Like, we've got absolutely nothing to do with those things. Church, where in the world is the pretense going to come from if this is how we pray every single day? God, I need you even for bread. Like, it's not about my awesomeness, and it's not about my kingdom, and it's not about what I can do and how high I can pull my bootstraps up. Like, it has nothing to do with that, but I need you even for daily bread. Where's the pretense going to come from if that's how we're praying over and over again? He continues in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're going to come back to this one in just a minute, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Church, he's giving us permission to ask for deliverance long before we ever walk into that tempting situation that we feel like we cannot even get out of. You understand, like, that's what he's teaching us to pray? Like, right now, when you're safe, right now, when you're not even tempted, start praying that. 
He's giving you permission. Long before I ever walk into that tempting situation that I feel like is so overwhelming, I would never be able to escape it. Start praying right now. God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil right now long before I ever got there. Can we think about that one for a second? Honestly, how much would your life have been spared from had you been praying this prayer all along? Think about the college years. How much would you have been spared from had I been praying all along? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Like, lead me not into temptation. You know what it's like at work late at night and when we're out, out with the coworkers. Like, how much would your life have been spared from had we been praying this prayer all along? I'll never forget a, a, a few years back. It was just after year one here at Dallas Bible Church. I had a chance to go to Colorado with the Radabaws, and um, this couple invited us, and they're just prayer warriors. They wanted to come and bless the pastors and, and pray with them and encourage them. And we got there, and one of the first nights there, Kat and I were meeting with this couple, and they asked us this question. They said, uh, we want to pray for you, but is there anything that you feel like the Holy Spirit is giving you? Is there a word that you feel like the Holy Spirit is just giving you that you want to keep coming back to uh, over and over again as you pray about yourself and your marriage and your ministry at the church this next year? And so we took another day or so to keep thinking about it. And as I kept praying and thinking about this, this question that he asked me, I just, there was one word that kept popping into mind. It was the word protection. And I was reading the news, right? I was reading the news, and I was, just, I, I was reading about all the different moral failures of different pastors that are out there and how the, the churches and the gatherings like, are crushed in the wake of these things. Like, and it's not just sex scandals, but it's abuse scandals, and it's cover-up, and it's major, major pride and bullying and all of these different things. And this word that just kept coming to mind was protection, 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 protect our family, protect my ministry, protect my mind, protect my heart, protect my soul, protect our church. Let it remain pure. And church, that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to pray right now. Long before you even find yourself in this tempting situation, he's inviting you to say, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil right now. Long before I ever cross the point of no return, God, would you do a work in keeping me from that tempting situation even right now? Remember a couple years ago, I was talking with a, a friend, an acquaintance from college, and hadn't seen him in years, and we were catching up about a lot of things, and I don't know why we got into this, but he just started confessing a lot of different things. And he was just talking about how he kind of shared this R-rated story uh, with me that was, I can't really repeat the details and stuff, but um, he was just describing this scene and it was just, he couldn't get out of the temptation. It was overwhelming. And all of a sudden, I don't know if he was feeling guilty, but he kind of looked at me and he goes, Aaron, here's the thing. He goes, he goes, I know what you're thinking right here, but you wouldn't have even been able to say no if you were in that exact same situation. And he was describing, and he's probably right, if I were in that exact same situation, like you kind of crossed the point of no return. But I looked at him, we had a friendship, and I was like, you're probably right about that, but here's the difference. Like, I would not have been in that situation to begin with. Church, that's exactly what Jesus is inviting you to pray. God, long before I ever walk in there, would you deliver me from this tempting situation? Long before I ever walk in there, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Lord, I'm about to go to work. Uh, I'm about to travel for my work, and you know what my coworkers like to do. You know what my clients like to do for entertainment. God, would you keep me and would you deliver me from evil? Would you give me some sort of an out? God, you, you know what it's like when I'm on the road alone at night and I'm in my hotel room and you know how lonely I feel. God, would you lead me not into temptation, but would you give me some sort of an out? God, you, you, you know how flirty my coworkers can be and you know how good that makes me feel. Would you lead me not into temptation, but would you give me some sort of an out? God, you know what it's like when I'm home alone at night and the computer screen is wide open. Would you lead me not into temptation, but would you give me some sort of an out long before I ever get there? And what he's saying right here is he would love to give you an out. 
He's invited us to pray this way. It's actually his will that you walk away from that temptation. So this is something that he desires for us to do. And he's simply saying, uh, you can pray and you can ask for an out. The only question that's, that's there on the table is, are you willing to take it when he gives it to you? A church, would hypocrisy, again, would hypocrisy be such a problem if we prayed this way every single day? God, I, like, long before I ever walk into that situation where I become the most hypocritical person alive, God, would you keep me from that temptation? Would hypocrisy be such a problem if, if, we, if, if we prayed in this way? Verse 14 gets really, really weird. It's an odd statement. It's connected to verse 12. Here's what it says in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, would you forgive me of my debts? Would you forgive me of my sin as I forgive those who sin against me? Then verse 14 says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive other people their sins, then your Father will not forgive your sins. What? Like, what in the world is he saying right there? I mean, it kind of seems to contradict everything else we've talked about and seen in Scripture where forgiveness is an act of God's grace that he gifts us when we come to him in genuine faith, turning from where we were, coming to him in genuine faith. It seems to be that he gives us this forgiveness that's forever. I mean, Paul is going to be saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, yeah, we used to be defined by the things that we did. However, now in Christ, uh, we have been washed, right? We have been sanctified. We've been set apart and called holy. We've been justified And declared righteous, not because we are, but because God gives us his righteousness in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when we come to him in faith. And so we read these passages and we're sitting there going, okay, well, it seems like like it's pretty complete. I mean, it seems like there's that forgiveness is certain when I come to him in genuine faith. It's like, why are we asking over and over again? I mean, Hebrews is going to put it like this. He's going to say his sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, it was sufficient. He did not need to offer sacrifices day after day every time we sin. His sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. I mean, he's going to say in chapter 10 that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, positionally, forgiveness is a given. It is once and for all by the sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that relationally, church, there is still tension going on. And it's not, just, it's not tension from his end where, whereby he's thinking, okay, I'm going to ditch this guy. I'm running. I'm leaving. I'm cold and, and numb in my affections toward him. But it's exactly what Hebrews is going to say when he says, let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still cold today, so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. In other words, church, like that's what's taking place. When we continue in hypocritical, unrepentant sin, that's what's taking place. It's not so much that God is running from us and becoming hardened towards us. The reality is that we are becoming hardened to the things of God. We are, our heart is becoming hardened to this, but because of the deceitfulness of our sin. That's what's going on. We're kind of like the married couple who's living under the, under the same roof, but we refuse to talk to each other. And one of them kind of wants to be in this thing, but the other is just sitting there going, you know what, I don't even care. Like we, we, we know what that's like where it's difficult to open up the word of God and, and to go spend time with him. We know what that's like when it's difficult to go before him in prayer, like our heart has become hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. And what we need to do is we need to come together and we need to have a conversation. And one of us needs to be saying two simple words, I am sorry. Three words. Just caught that. No conjunction there. That's it. Lord, I, I'm genuinely sorry. God, forgive me of my sin. And, and, and not just in a generic sense, God, I'm a sinner, would you forgive me? But like specifically, Lord, Lord I, like, I, like I covet things in this world that, that don't belong to me, God. 
And these things that took place in the middle of the day, like, like they went through my mind and they went down into my heart. And God, they're disgusting before you. And, and I'm confessing them. God, would you forgive me of these different things? Like, I, like, I, like I'm insanely selfish and I don't even care about the suffering of other people. Like I'm, I, I care about, about the cowboys and my own comfort that I do you. Like, I mean, just think about the way that I treat my family. I often treat strangers better than the way that I do my, my own family. God, forgive me for my absence. Forgive me for my callousness. Forgive me for the way that I spoke to my spouse the other day. Forgive me for the way that I don't speak to my spouse at all. Forgive me for the way that I ignore the things that are going on with my kids. Forgive me for the things that I think about and allow go on in my head over and over and over again. Church, why in the world is it so hard for us to say I'm sorry? Why is it so hard to confess and to say, God, I need your forgiveness? Church, like we know that there's nothing more healing you can ever say than those two words, I'm sorry. And you know this, like some of you are in a relationship and you're dying to hear those words from the person that you love. Like you know how powerful these words are. And, and you've seen this in different, in different venues, right? Like, like I go and hypothetically have this conflict with my spouse and, right, this is a hypothetical thing, but... Um, like, and I finally come to that, that moment of realization, I'm going, okay, this is on me. And there's a way it could come in, I could be like, babe, sorry, I told you I'm sorry, why don't you just forgive me already? Like, there's no healing in that kind of an apology, but I'm coming before, and I'm going, okay, Lord, I'm, go, I'm going, Lord, this is true about me. Cat, would you forgive me for these specific things over here? You're right. Like, I did these things, and I was, I was wrong to come and to do those things and to think those things or to do whatever that thing may be. Like there's a difference between going general and vague and owning your own stuff. Why is it so hard for us to say, I'm sorry? I mean, the reason that we're able to do this so confidently before the Lord our God is because positionally, church, he is taking care of everything. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has completely set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, you are his child. You've been adopted into his family. You've been given the right to be called children of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. That sonship and that daughtership is not going away. Why is it so difficult to say? I mean, do we believe that maybe if I'm being honest about my sin or if I, if I admit my failures or I admit my hypocrisy that somehow I'm going to invalidate the gospel? Church, I got news. Like, I, I promise you, like, the gospel was never about your ability to always get everything right. In fact, the gospel begins in recognition that I could not get everything right. So God, in his infinite love for me, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and get everything right for me. Like, that is the gospel that we proclaim, church. Healing began when we said those words before God, I'm sorry. Like, I recognize that I'm a sinner before a holy God, and I repent of those things. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that all language includes me. Like healing began, salvation began, this relationship with the Lord our God began when we bowed before his throne and we said, I'm sorry. There's none who are righteous, there's not even one person, that includes me. And I've blown it not just generically, but I've blown it specifically in these particular ways. Like why is it so hard to say? And it's not just healing, you understand, that? Like, it's not just healing for the person who needs to hear it. Like it's healing for you too, Right? Like, we need to be able to confess things, and we need to get things off of, our, off of our chest, and we need to be honest about what's going on here. I mean, it's why James is going to say, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
Like Proverbs is going to say the same thing. People who conceal their sin will not prosper, but if they confess their sin and turn away from it, they will receive mercy. Why is it so hard for us? Christians should be experts at reconciliation. We do it every single day. It's how we began our relationship with God. God, I recognize you're God and I'm not. I recognize that you're holy and pure and I'm not. I recognize that I'm fallen and I need your grace every single day. should be experts at reconciliation. I've shared this before and I feel like it, it bears repeating again here. I've shared with you guys a number of times about my friend Don and number of years ago, Don, back in the day, in his early 20s, was the most popular gay male prostitute in all of Dallas. And I've shared with you some of these stories and stuff before, but the day that everything began to turn with Don was the day that he heard those two words, I'm sorry, from the conservative evangelical church. I've told you some of this story before, but I met him at a party, and, you know, he, he found out I was a pastor at Northwest Bible, and he goes, oh, well, we're not going to be friends. And I was like, why is that? And he goes, well, that was the last time I ever stepped foot in a church. I was like, wow, tell me about that. And he said basically 25 years ago he was there with his partner. After the service he was looking for answers. This is in the middle of the 80s when AIDS was rampant. The gay community was passing away like left and right, and they're desperate for answers. They went to church that day, and in the parking lot somebody came and told him, you deserve to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell. And I was like, well, I can understand why you stayed away. We developed a friendship, and... A little while later, he finally decided to make, uh, to overcome some of these barriers, and he decided to, to come to church with me. I assured him that it was not like that anymore, and he calls me from the parking lot that day, right? And, and he's like, Aaron, I'm out in the parking lot, and I can't get out of the car. I can't do it. I'm terrified. And I tried talking to him, and three times he hung up and calls me back. He's like, okay, I think I can do it. No, I can't. And three different times, and finally I went out there and just grabbed him, and he came, comes, comes inside. And I told Neil Tomba, the senior pastor there, about his story, and so Neil kind of knew what was going on with Don, and we came into the service that day, and Neil gets up there about to preach, and he just goes, you know what, church, I need to, we need to do something a little bit different that day. Don's sitting next to me in the back and middle of that sanctuary, and he goes, church, every now and then we need to make apologies, and we need to ask for forgiveness for the sins of our fathers. And he went on to kind of tell a little bit of Don's story while concealing his identity and things of that nature, and he called the entire church to get on their knees before God and, and to just ask for forgiveness for screaming so loudly that we've made it impossible for certain people to understand the grace and healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not kidding you, church. Like, literally that day, every single one of us in that church service, we were on our knees, individually just praying and saying, God, we, we're, we need your forgiveness collectively. I personally did not say that to him, but collectively as a church body. We've made it impossible for some to un understand the grace and healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that was happening, and I'm going, okay, this is a lot for someone's first time in church for 25 years, right? And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I hope this is a good experience. And we get in the car on the way back, and it was just silent for a while. I'm going, oh, my, I hope and pray this is a good event. And we get over to lunch, and I finally asked him, I said, Don, what did, what did you take from this? I was like, are you, what, are you okay? And he just burst into tears, and he goes, I've been dying to hear those words for so long. So long. Church, there is nothing more relationally powerful than hearing those words. I'm sorry. I can't even begin to tell you like what 
that moment did in our relationship with him and in our relationship with his friends in the Oaklong community? Why is it so hard for us to say those words? We do it every single day, right? Or do we? We understand that life begins when I come before God and I say, I'm sorry, and I need grace, and I need your forgiveness, and I need your spirit to come and do something brand new inside of me that I cannot do for myself. We understand that. Why are these words so hard for us? Church, you can't preach a message about hypocrisy without having some rough nights in the office alone as you're wrestling this and working this through with the Lord. There's a song by Goo Goo Dolls that says, uh, every time you point a finger, there's three more fingers pointing right back at you. <laughs> I checked out the facts. It's actually true. So there's three of them. I never want to go against the Goo Goo Dolls. It was rough. I started wrestling with the Lord. I was like, Lord... Where am I being hypocritical, right? Isn't that the question we have to ask? Where am I? Not just collectively we, not just, hey, there's these problems out there, and I can apologize on behalf of them, but like, where am I being hypocritical in this whole thing? And I wrote down a number of things, and immediately the poor and the impoverished came to mind, and God, I'm so sorry that I've abandoned them, that I've neglected them, that I drive quickly past them and don't give them a second time, a time of day, and that I've never considered their needs above my own. I thought about the widows and the elderly. And I said, Lord, I'm sorry that it took seeing this take place in my own family before I realized that this is a real problem and that there's genuine loneliness and there's genuine pain in that community that I've never even entered into before. It's to the gay community, Right? It's not just Neil Tomlin, it's not just them, but it's, Father, I'm genuinely sorry that we've yelled and screamed and we fought so loudly that they can never even understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is available to them in the exact same way that it's available to you and me when we come to him in genuine faith, turning from our sin, calling upon him for forgiveness, that same grace is available to them. And God, I'm sorry that we have yelled and screamed and made it nearly impossible for an entire community of people to not understand the beauty of your gospel. My African-American friends, I'm sorry that you're not here. It's on us. I'm sorry that we didn't believe that there are real issues still going on today. I've told you this before. I've been a part of a, a Be the Bridge group recently that's wrecked my life. All that is is a group of African-Americans and white people, some in the church, some outside of the church, and we're talking about race. Christians, believers who love the church, who love the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm hearing stories that blow my mind. I had no idea that some of these things were still taking place. I had no idea my naivety, my ignorance, and how much pain it caused so many people. And Why is it so hard to admit Like you're listening to stories, like you're hearing the real people in front of you tell me their stories. Like it's not a, it's not a, a Democrat-Republican thing. It's not liberal versus conservative. It's not, a, it's not a political matter. This is a matter that is central to the heart of the gospel. We believe in a message of reconciliation. 
whereby every man, woman, and child is given inherent dignity and value by God. Denied it for a long time. No, we're past it. We're past it. Not a problem today. It is a problem today still. To the students in the first service and some that are here still, I'm sorry that we've been hypocritical. I'm sorry that you've seen it in church leadership. I'm sorry that you've seen it in your parents. I'm sorry that you've seen it in other Christian believers around you. I'm sorry that you've seen it on TV. And that we've dropped the baton as we've tried to pass on this faith to the next generation. We've dropped it. And it's on us. It's on us. It's on me. Why can't we say those words? Why was that so hard? We do this every day, right? Or do we? Church, would hypocrisy be such a problem today if we prayed exactly as Jesus taught us how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Nothing else on the agenda. No other needs. No other concerns. I just want to be with you and I want to worship you. You're not distant. You're not a genie in the sky. You're not a business transaction. You're my father who went to incredible lengths in order to reconcile me and bring me back into relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom. It's not about my fame. It's not about my glory. It's not about my desires, all of these things. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I need you. No pretense. Even though you've given me this job, it's no pretense. I need you. You control the weather. You control the economy. You control all things. I need you every single day. No pretense. Forgive me of my sins because they're numerous. And they're new every single day. And not just generically, but God, forgive me for my coveting. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my desires to be loved and liked by all kinds of people, which keeps me in fear and keeps me from saying difficult things. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Church, would hypocrisy be such a problem if we prayed that way every single day?